Good morning. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, by your Holy Spirit, please bless your church today. Please dwell among us and within us. Fill us with that same spirit. Breathe life into this text and give this meaning to our lives and our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Os Guinness is an author and social critic. He's the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness, the famous brewer from Dublin. Um, Oz was born in China at the beginning of World War II, where his parents were medical missionaries. And he, as a consequence, he had witnessed much of the, the, the climax of the Chinese Communist Revolution in 1949. He was expelled with his family in 1951, where he went back to England for his education, and then came to the United States in 1984. He wrote the book, uh, Dining with the Devil, that's the title that I stole, but the professor tells me that he stole that title from some previous character. But at any rate, in his book, Dining with the Devil, Os Guinness writes, what shapes the message of the church, the Bible and spirit, or society and culture? Then he goes on to make some comparisons of some of the designs that churches have to in increase church growth, which he says look less like following Christ, and more like following the devil. So he puts out several points of compromise of the church growth movement. It's an interesting read, especially in light of the fact that he wrote that 30 years ago when the church growth movement was just kicking off at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s. But it's still quite significant, if not prophetic, for what the church in America is going through today. Uh, Guinness warns that the church growth movement... Um, is much like dining with the devil, and as Peter Bergen once said, he who sups with the devil had better have a very long spoon. At any rate, uh, Guinness says that the church today is using a lot of marketing tools and management techniques and theories in attempting to grow audiences which uh, really are very unscriptural. He says that a lot of the implementation of these things are designed not so much to teach the Word of God and not so much to bring glory to God, but to grow the congregation as if that is the end goal itself. And so he asks, um, he says, when it's all said and done, the church growth movement will stand or fall on one question. In implementing its vision of gro church growth, is the Church of Christ primarily guided and shaped by its own character and calling or by considerations and circumstances alien to itself? The heart of the question is one of authority. What will the church submit to as the ultimate authority? Will it be scripture or will it be the ever-changing, ever-fickle demands of culture? Is the audience sovereign or is the message? And so he targets several examples of of church growth strategy like secularism and uh, the seeker-friendly church and pandering to the felt needs of the religious consumer as an example where the church's techniques look a whole lot more like dining with the devil than serving the Lord. Well, today's lesson is quite literally about dining with the devil. And I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn where we left off last week to Esther chapter 5, verse, verse 1. Esther 5, 1. Now you remember the story, Vashti is the queen. She gets deposed because 
Um, she refuses to obey the king. Esther enters a beauty contest. She gets chosen by the king to be uh, the queen in, in Vashti's place. At her uncle Mordecai's command, she keeps the identity of her Jewishness a secret from the king of Persia. And she then hides her identity in order to be selected by the king. In the meantime, Mordecai apparently is elevated to a position of government authority. He's in the king's gate. And while he's there in some official capacity, he learns of this attempted uh, murder of the king, this assassination attempt. And so he turns in the two guys to Esther, who in turn tells the king of this assassination plot and mentions that it's in that her source was Mordecai. The king is, uh, finds out that this assassination plot is genuine. He has these two guys hung. And it goes into the record book that Mordecai was the source who saved the king's life. But for some reason, Mordecai is not rewarded. But that's going to play in back again where we come back to this story next week. Um, in the meantime, a fellow by, by the name of Haman enters the scene, and he gets elevated to the second highest position in the land. That makes him the second most powerful person on earth at that time. And the king gives orders to all of the government officials that they are to show the due respect to Haman, who is now prime minister. Mordecai, the Jew, does not show respect. He does not bow. He does not acknowledge Haman as his superiority. And this really torques Haman off. And when he learns from the advisors that Haman is a Jew, he decides he not only wants to execute Haman, he wants to murder every Jew in the world. So tricking the king to get the authority to do so, um, Haman organizes a particular day, about 11 months distance, when all of the Jews throughout all of the Persian Empire, pretty much the entire civilized world at the time, will be uh, executed. They'll, they'll be killed, and anybody who kills them can then confiscate their property. He wants to get rid of them all. Now Mordecai becomes aware of this plan, and he and his fellow Jews go into mourning and fasting. He goes as far as he can to attract the king's attention and to protest this edict. Of course, in mourning, he can't go any further than the king's gate. Esther sends her trusted uh, servants to go find out from Mordecai what's going on. Why, why all the weeping and wailing and mourning? Here's a change of clothes, which he uh, rejects. And Mordecai tells him the plan, tells Esther's servant the plan, and tells Esther, hey, you have to do something about this. So you're the queen. You go to the king and plead our cause. Initially, Esther says, you, you know that can't happen, right? You know that it's against the law for anyone to enter into the king's presence unbidden, uninvited, and you would be executed for, for doing so. And so she demurs, telling that this is an impossible mission. It's very dangerous. We don't have a relief from Susa, but we do from one of the other of the four capitals of Persia, from Persepolis, there is a picture of the king's uh, throne room. And in this throne room, there are several guys with the presence of king. But right behind the king is a guy with a giant axe. And his sole job is that if you entered into the king's presence without being invited, you, that guy would lop your head off with the axe. It's a very real threat. It's not just, um, not just a, a, a difficult 
job. This is, a, this is mission impossible. And what makes this mission so impossible are four things. One, to speak to the king, Esther has to break the law for which the penalty is death. That's what we're talking about right now. You can't just barge in and start talking to the king. Two, she has to make an appeal to the king, and when she does, she will necessarily have to reveal the fact that she's been lying to the king for about five years as to her national identity because she's been keeping it a secret. Now, she wants to go in eventually and point out that Mordecai lied to the king, and the king should have summarily judgment against, excuse me, I said, did it again. Haman is the one who's lied to the king. But she's going to have to reveal the fact that she also has been lying to the king. And if she does, will the king be angry with her for the fact that she also has deceived him? Now, three, she has to convince the king to overthrow an irreversible law, to reverse an irreversible law. Because you remember, their laws said, according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. So she's going to essentially ask the king to change a law that cannot be changed. And fourth, her mission here is to oppose Haman, one of the most powerful people on earth at that moment. And that brings us to our text today, chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Okay, so Esther has to go before the king. Remember, she's been fasting for three days. Uh, hope, hopefully she doesn't look the part because unlike in our culture, an attractive woman was much heavier and plumper and well-fed than, than today. And so if she was fasting, she, if she had any appearance of looking emaciated, that would, it, that would be an insult. Also, Esther's pointed out, we talked about this last week, that for 30 days, the king hasn't asked for her. Maybe she's lost her allure. Maybe he's preoccupied with this new batch of virgins that he's trying out. But for whatever reason, um, the king has not asked for her now for over a month. So the chances that he wants to see her now aren't really that good. And like I said, she's been deceiving the king for five years now about her Jewish identity. So unlike the first time or the last time we talked about Esther approaching the king, her objective at this point is not to be seductive. The first time it was. She needed to win the beauty contest. She needed to look like a babe. In this case, she needs to look regal. She needs to look like she's a person of status. So the text tells us, that she dresses up in her royal robes. She comes to look um, professional. She's dressing for the event. So she's not, coming to, uh, she's not coming to seduce. She's coming to show the king that she's, she is a, a person of high status and she's, she should be treated as such. So she begins her fateful walk into the inner court of the king. Now realize this. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't really know what to expect. She doesn't know whether she's going to make a good impression on him or not. She doesn't know if the king's in a favorable mood or an irritable mood. She doesn't know whether she's going to find favor with the king or not. Nevertheless, here's Esther acting in a rather remarkable way because she knows so little, but she's asked to step out with some faith. Not big faith, some faith. And so she acts with, with courage. Uh, she acts with uh, uh, conviction. And she acts with some faith. 
And our faith might be weak, but it's at least genuine. A lot of times we are called on to act in faith. And we would say, but my faith is not great. Sure, it's not great, but you can step out with faith that, that is real. Uh, there's so many times that, like Esther, our, our actions call for us to step out into the unknown, and we don't actually know what's going to happen. We don't actually know what the consequence is. The only thing that we do know is that we have to obey God. We have to do what he directs us to do. And so we step out in faith. Remember that? There's a scene at the end of Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. You know, he's trying to get the grail. And he, uh, he has to go through three great trials at the end of the movie. And he, he's done the first two. It's, a, it's the third of the trials. He walks through this narrow corridor. And it's quite narrow, so he can barely squeeze through and he gets to the end of the corridor, and there's this huge chasm. And he's consulting his, his book on the grail, and it says, you, you have to jump. And he looks across the chasm, and he says, nobody can jump that far. And he looks again at his, at his book, and it says, you know, you have, to, you have to jump. And so there's a moment of indecision, and then he, he's standing on the edge of this precipice, and it's, it's like from here to the door where he has to get across, and... and, and and his dad's on the other side saying, you know, just believe, son, just believe. So there's a moment where he takes, his, he takes a step out, and he starts in, and you think he's going to fall to his death down this big hole. You guys remember? Nobody? <laughs> okay. All right. So it looks like he's going to fall to his death, but in fact, as soon as he takes that first step, he lands on this invisible bridge. It's not really invisible. It's just been cleverly designed so that the, the crusaders who built this bridge, so that it looks like it's not there. And as soon as he's there, standing on the bridge, and if he looks at it from an angle, he can see that, oh, it really is there. And so he walks across the bridge. That's a picture so often of what God wants us to do when we step out in faith. We don't exactly know what's going to happen on the other side, but we trust that God is providentially in control. And if God asks us to do something, even though we don't know the consequences, even though we don't know the process, we just take the step of faith. It's not a blind step of faith. You're not blind because you have God's providence and you have God's direction. And so we step out in faith even though we don't know what awaits for us. And see, that's what Esther is doing in this case. She doesn't know what's going to happen to her. She has no guarantees that her mission's going to be successful. She has no guarantee that the king's not going to lop off her head. All she knows is she has to do this. Whatever happens, death or not, this is what she has to do. So she takes this treacherous walk into the court of the king. As Christ took the treacherous walk on the hill to Golgotha. Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out the, to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? Notice she's Queen Esther all of a sudden. She's not just Esther. What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given you, even up to half my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Um, it's, you, you might think, you know, the king, when he says, 
What do you want? Up to half my kingdom. Remember when, was it Herod that said that to Salome? And when that is said, it was actually a common thing to say. They don't actually mean it. You know, kings aren't, kings aren't in the habit of giving away half of their kingdom when somebody approaches them. But it's just a, it was a, a, a way of saying, you know, yes, uh, you, you have great favor in, in my mind, and, I, and I'm inclined to do what you ask. That's about all it really means. He's not really offering her half of his, of his kingdom. But he does ask her twice, what do you want? What's your request? Because I mean, he obviously knows that she must want something pretty serious because she's risked her life to ask for it. You know, he, he realizes this is a big thing she's going to ask for. She's not going to ask for, could you tell me what time it is? She wants something big, or she's not going to risk her life for it. And so he says, what, are you, what is it that you're wanting? I'm favorably inclined to do what it is that you ask. And what does she ask? I mean, to me, it seemed like there was, she's got this, she's got his favor at this moment. He's a fickle kind of a guy. You don't know what's going to happen next. She's got his favor. He's, in, he's just said, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Just kidding. But... Wouldn't you think, okay, this is a good time. You know, you've primed the pump. Ask him. Ask him what you want. What does she say? Um, could you come to a feast that I've prepared? Notice she's already prepared the feast, which leads me to two conclusions. One, she's at least hopeful that she's going to live through the morning. And two, she's got a plan because she wouldn't have had this feast prepared if she didn't have a plan. Well, let's investigate a little bit. Why would she ask the king to come to a feast? Why would she not just deal with things now? Well, first of all, it's not just Esther and the guy with the axe and herself in the throne room. There's going to be lots of other attendants and uh, business people in the room. There's going to be other guards and soldiers in the room. And this is an official capacity. What she wants to talk to the king about she wants to talk to in a more personal matter. And so the environment of a feast at my house, dinner and glass of wine, she'll be able to talk. Admitted there's going to be attendance at the, at the dinner too, but she's going to be able to talk to him more personally and uh, more informally. Also, it's quite possible that the request that she has where she's trying to counter Haman would embarrass the king because he apparently doesn't know about this. He apparently doesn't know about the edict at this far, and it might be publicly embarrassing for the king to have this pointed out. So she's, she's, uh, she's working her angles. So she's, she asked that the king would come and that uh, they, would, they would have this uh, less public, less formal, more of, of a casual meal together, and, and then... She'll talk about it. That's the implication here. Verse 6. And as they're drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What's your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what's your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in your sight, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Okay, so it's after dinner. The table's been cleared away. They're lounging on couches, having a glass of wine together. And once more, the king says, what do you want? What's your wish? 
what have you come to ask for? What's this all about? And once again, Esther declines to make her petition, and she offers no clue as to why. And now, the reason that she delays is actually less important to us than the fact that she delays. Because she doesn't know this, but the delay gives God a chance to work out some of the backstory that we're going to be talking about, some of the stuff that happens to Haman. But for her, the motive is, if the king agrees to come to this second banquet, he's more obligated to, to, to grant my request. John Nessett used to take me out to lunch, and I never figured out how I could beat him at this game, because no matter who paid, I was always obligated to him. He just had this way of figuring it out, so that you were always the one that uh, was obligated to, to the other guy. The, the queen now is asking the, the king and Haman to come back for another feast because somehow that more deeply obligates him to fulfill the request that she's going to ask, and the king is agreeing to it. Now, a critic of Esther might say, Esther's in over her head, and she's playing games... And she's, in actuality, a hesitant pawn in a man's game. And she should not be doing something like that. But from the perspective of Jewish wisdom, Esther appears to be taking control because she has moved the game. She's arranging the pieces on the chessboard favorably to her. She's already taken it out of the throne room and moved it into her court to move it where she's in control of the environment. She's played the wife game, and she's played the uh, humble game here. But what she's actually doing is she's arranging the chess pieces according to her strategy, which is ultimately going to lead to the checkmate of Haman. So she, in actuality here, is the, the master chess player. She's in, firmly in control of the game. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled. Remember, the problem before was he didn't bow. This time he doesn't even stand up. He neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions which the king had honored him and how he'd been advanced above all the officials and servants of the king. Guys, you ever go home and brag to your wife about what a great guy you are? <laughs> and and on, the, for, on the one hand, they already know, and on the second hand, they're not impressed anyway. <laughs> I heard about this pastor one time. He was driving home with his wife, and he goes, Honey, how many really great pastors do you think, really great speakers there are in the church today? She says, I don't know, honey, but I bet it's one less than you do. All right, back to our text. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully 
with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman, he leaves this feast on top of the world. He feels so convivial and in a good humor here. He's the only one, the only one in the world that gets to dine in the private audience of the king and the queen. But his joyful attitude is quickly squelched when he gets... He's leaving the palace, and he passes through the king's gate. Mordecai, by this time, has gotten rid of his sackcloth. He's back in his official capacity. Haman, Mordecai meet, and Mordecai refuses to acknowledge Haman. There's this studied indifference about Mordecai's preeminence. And in keeping with his temperament, Haman holds back his fury. He's going to bide his time. Haman just can't stand Mordecai. He hates him for being a Jew. He hates him because he's disrespectful. He hates him because he's not showing the glory and the honor that Haman feels that, is, that he deserves. And as a result, he comes home and he begins to brag to his wife and to his friends about all his great wealth. You know they know. And about all his sons, I'm pretty sure his wife's figured that out too. <laughs> and about all the promotions that, that he's got. And he relates about how his ego has been so bruised and he feels this bitterness from the slight. And he just feels the necessity to go on and on about this recital about what a great guy he is. And he tells them then something that they don't know. I know something you don't know. I am not left-handed. He tells them something... <laughs> they don't know yet, and they don't know that he's been the special, um, it, he's had the special invitation to Esther's party, and, and, and if anybody is great and honorable, certainly it is he, and beyond that, he's been invited back again to the queen's banquet. Nevertheless, all this boasting does not salve his wounded pride. He, he, he's, he's had all these honors, all these riches, all this fame, all this importance, but it really boils down to nothing as long as there's this Mordecai in his life, as long as there is Mordecai silently, motionlessly um, mocking him at, at the gate. So he's, he's saying, I have all these things, but they mean nothing to me as long as there's this one thorn in my side. His friends say, hey, we got a great idea. Let's build a gallows, 50 cubits high. Now, a cubit is 18 inches, so this is a 75-foot-tall gallows. It's ridiculously tall. The, the palace in, in Susa was only 45 feet tall, and this would be ginormous to have a gallows. Now, it's not, when we talk about hanging Mordecai, we're not talking about hanging him from a noose from a, a, a gallows like we would think. This kind of a gallows was a large stake that you would be impaled upon. That's the kind of hanging the Persians did. They would impale you. And to have it 75 feet high, where they'd have to build scaffolds and then put a stake at the top, this was to lift him up higher is to communicate just how low can you go because they're, they're going to stick him on this stake Everybody in the whole city, no matter where you are, will be able to see this guy impaled on a stake. That's what happens to people I don't like. And so his, the whole point is to humiliate a Mordecai publicly as much as they can. 
It's a grotesque way of, of execution, usually reserved only for the most sordid of criminals. By the way, remember the two guys that tried to assassinate the king, Bigtha and Teresh? Those two guys got impaled. They were hung in a similar way. But the point is that uh, Haman wants everyone to know just how publicly humiliated Mordecai will be. Haman's emotions reveal something about Haman's idol. Haman's idol was public respect. He wanted everyone to like him and to acknowledge him. when, When his idol is fed, he feels great. When people acknowledge what a great guy he is and, and they love him, he feels a, a, a happiness about it. But when this idol is challenged, it leads him to feel malice and anger and, and even murder. So his joy and his anger simply are outward expression of the heart's idolatry. And Haman is a case study of what happens in our hearts, too, with, with, our, idol, with our own idolatry. You, you want to know what your idols are in your life? I'll tell you a simple way. Figure out when your idol is stroked, it makes you feel happy, and when your idol is challenged, it makes you feel angry or sad or d- depressed. You know, when you, when, for Haman, his idol was, was, was public recognition, and his to have to be given that public rec- recognition made him feel great, and to have anyone, even one guy, challenge that made him feel um, threatened. That's, and that's true of our hearts, too. So, again, with regard to the development of chapter 5, you see here there's a contrast being developed, being sorted out for us, and the contrast is this. Esther's humility and obedience against Haman's growing pride. So Esther comes with, with, with great humility, and she, she comes in, in, in acts to communicate suitable deference to the king, and as a re- result of her humbleness, she is shown uh, favor and opportunity. Haman, on the other hand, um, is displaying his pride, and it drove him to absurd boasting about himself to his friends and his wife, and then to uh, actually plan this great murder. Now, I have to confess something to you. I could relate a lot more to Haman than I can to Esther. I think I understand how Haman must have felt um, being this, having this privileged position of being a special guy invited to this, this banquet. And I can also empathize with the depletion of his joy when Mordecai still refuses to to bow down to him. It's not that I expect people to bow down to me, of course, but I do have to confess that there's a disproportionate need for people to like me, for everybody to like me. And maybe you can relate to this, this, this desire to have people. There's not, it's not that there's anything wrong with having people like you or wanting to have them like you, but when you are obsessed with people's approval, uh, it can disorient your values. Uh, and in the scale of my ego, it may take a dozen positive strokes to uh, balance the one negative 
that one negative person. See, that's what's happening with, with Haman right here. He's got everything going for him. He's got wealth. He's got family. He's got friends. He's got power and prestige. He's the second most powerful man in the world, but it's all nothing as long as he's got this Mordecai. And I think there's a lot of Christians that share my failure of, of pride and the desire to be liked by everyone. Our, our need for approval can overwhelm our, our better judgment. And when someone doesn't approve, it can really rob you of joy. Huh? <laughs> oh. But the Bible gives us an antidote to this problem of pride, and it's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. This, it gives us an antidote for this obsessive need for approval. Uh, Peter writes, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he may exalt you in the due time, casting your care upon him, for he cares for you. So Peter calls us to humble ourselves before God, to, to bow before his majesty, to submit ourselves to God when we're overwhelmed. And then he, and he calls us to, to submit our lives to him and to, 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 to seek his favor. And the promise is that when we do, we will find pleasure and freedom. And all of this is the, with the promise that in the appropriate time, God will exalt you when he, when he sees fit. What a common and insidious thing is pride, a sin that's so deeply rooted in each one of us. Wasn't it pride that ultimately led to the highest seraphim, Satan, to abandon his place in heaven to be cast to, to hell? So pride is actually satanic in its origin. And when we give into it, it consumes us and it grows. It's a cancer. It's a spiritual cancer that, that eats us up. And when we feed it, it grows. It, it delights in, in comparisons. It takes special pleasure when we are given unique honors and supposed superiority. And when we give in to that pride, we are dining with the devil. Isn't it pride that fuels the whole church growth movement? I mean, let's ask an honest question here. We all want to see our church grow. We want to see this church prosper. But is our motive pride that we want our church to grow and our name to prosper and our fame to be expanding? Or is it we want the kingdom of God and his name and his fame to be growing. See, I think a lot of times it's just, it's the pride in ourself. That's why we want church growth, and it's not to give God greater honor. Derek, Pride's, Derek Prime warns, pride is one of the greatest sins because it makes us treat God's gifts as if they rightly belonged to us and were created by us. Our pride robs God of his right to be acknowledged as the source of all good we enjoy. Our pride is a form of dishonesty and gives a false view of our own importance. It's frequently the substitution and exaltation of ourselves in the place of God. I think 
our pride really is at its root dishonest. Um, one of my good friends was asking me about, you know, what's your signature sin? And I said, it's either pride or dishonesty. Because you ever notice that when you brag about yourself, when you're boasting, that you exaggerate? And when you exaggerate, that's a non-truth, right? I wonder if it's even possible to brag and not lie because you're implying something about yourself which is better than what it really is. I'm not a saint. I'm just a, a sinner that's saved by grace. But the gospel answers our true need for significance. Nothing speaks more about your significance that the God of creation cares enough in your life to be involved in your situation where he sends his son to die on the cross, to give up his life in your place, and then to empower you with the presence of his Holy Spirit. There you have the triune, the tri, the three times holy God working for you. These truths are of uttermost eternal significance. And how often, though, we, we fail to understand these and to embrace these truths. We instead search for this fleeting significance rather in other people's praise of us than in God's praise of us. You've been approved by God in Christ Jesus. You, you, you can't become more significant than that. You can't be more set free to serve in obscurity because about what God has chosen in, in you. But shouldn't our joy, shouldn't our delight in salvation be more impregnable than it, than it is? Shouldn't it be stronger than Haman's idolatry where it's so fickle and so easily manipulated by circumstances? Shouldn't we be more firm in our understanding and our belief of God's love and acceptance for us? And yet how many times have we said, probably never, but in our heart we've thought, yeah, I know God has done great things for me and that he has made me a child and made me co-heirs with Christ in his glorious inheritance, yet it's all nothing if I can't have, and then you fill in the blank, you know, with some sense of security or comfort. You know, perhaps you're... Your joy has been robbed from you because you feel a lack of love at home or a lack of respect from your peers or a lack of acknowledgement from, from your, your boss at work. And so we are so easily cast down by these earthly setbacks and we've lost sight of the glorious, the glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's, it's, pride is such a, such a cancer. Now in Jewish folklore, Haman here represents devil. In fact, in Hebrew, his name is Haman Harasha, and that means Haman, the wicked one. Uh, Haman not only represents the devil in this story, he's, he's ultimately controlled by the devil. He, he personifies the devil. He displays the devil's selfishness, the devil's pride, and the devil's hatred for God and for his people, whom he still hates with just the same kind of wrath today. 
Esther is quite literally dining with the devil. Again, I want to close by recognizing that, you know, we, we do want to see our church grow and we want to see this, the, the kingdom of God grow. But as Oz Guinness points out, when we attempt to do God's work in growing the church by using the strategies of marketing and, and, uh, and, and pandering to the felt needs of the religious consumer, um, we are, in essence, abandoning the sovereignty of, of God and of his word and exchanging it, rather, for an appeal to the, the sovereignty of the, of, of the audience. And when we do that... We're trying to do the Lord's work with the devil's tools. We are dining with the devil. Let's close in prayer. We thank you again for your word, Father, and pray that you might um, cause us to ruminate on these truths. And we invite you to have your desired effect in changing us to trust you more, um, to love you more, to submit to you and to have the desire that your kingdom grows and not our own. To this end, Father, we ask that you'd please bless this church. We ask that you'd please bring glory to the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.